0: Talking about knowing God personally, not just knowing that God exists, but knowing God in a real life-changing way. And that happens when you repent and believe. Jesus made this statement in Luke 13: unless you repent,
1: you will all likewise perish. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the daily radio program of Dr. Carl Brogie. Pastor Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working on a study of the book of Jonah and today Pastor Carl begins a new message from Jonah and examines the second commission that God gave Jonah. This time we'll see Jonah's obedience which results in a great revival in Nineveh from the great to the small. It's not through a feel-good message but rather a message of destruction that this rival springs from. Join us now in Jonah chapter three, beginning in verse five.
0: I wanna invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Jonah chapter three. If you are here for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This is the seventh of what I project to be 10 messages on this book. Now I know there are many new people here each time, some listening, some on our other campuses. And so let me set the record of this historical events so you know where we are. And I know it's helpful to review too for our regular people because I wanna embed these details in your life. As we go through the book of Jonah, I want the book of Jonah to go through us because it's the Word of God that's implanted in the heart that the Spirit of God uses to renew our thinking and to make us more like Christ. Now, if you remember in outlining the book, there are two great commissions. In chapter 1 and verse 1, the first commission is given. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, we have the recommission of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we have his first commission to go preach to the Ninevites. And we studied how he disobeyed and he went in the opposite direction. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And so in chapters one and two, we have the commission of Jonah. He is called to go to Nineveh. He's supposed to go east. Instead, he goes west. He goes in the opposite direction. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he is God's prophetic instrument To preach the gospel but he also recognizes that there's also a prophecy given by some of his contemporaries that will remind us that the ninevites will become god's prophetic instrument to bring judgment on disobedient and idolatrous israel and he certainly doesn't want that so he thinks if he can remove himself from the presence of god and get himself far enough away that he won't be able to accomplish the mission And so, if you remember, God hurls a great storm on the sea. The sailors are frantic. They fight against the storm. Finally, they take lots. The lot falls providentially on Jonah. They don't know what to do. And then they decide to throw him overboard. Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And if you are running from God this morning and you really know the Lord, you will meet God in his chastisement. And so the prodigal prophet of chapter one becomes the praying prophet in chapter two. He's in the belly of the great fish. And if you look at chapter two and verse nine, you will read, he says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. He's not going to get relief until he purposes in his heart to keep the vow that he had made when God called him as a prophet. And so that great fish couldn't stomach him any longer. And again, in God's providence, he threw him up. And so we read in verse 10 of chapter two, then the Lord commanded the fish and had vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God would not allow him out until he kept his vow. And God will not remove his hand of chastisement over you if you have been called and vowed to do something specific, but you have chosen to disobey. And so the praying prophet in chapter three becomes the preaching prophet. So again, the big scope of the book, two commissions, one and two, the first commission, three and four, the recommission. And then I gave you four chapter titles. In chapter one, he's the prodigal prophet. He said, I won't go. He is running away from God. In chapter two, he's the praying prophet. He's running towards God, and he's basically saying in the belly of the great fish, I will go. In chapter three, he is the preaching prophet. He's running for the Lord, and he, in essence, is saying by his life, I am here. And then when we come to chapter four in our next encounter, we will see that he is the pouting prophet, He's running ahead of God, and he's basically saying, I wish I hadn't come. Now, last time we delved into the first four verses. I'm going to start there for context, and we hope God willing to go through verse 10. Follow along. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the, Lord, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste the thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, the greatest revival in the history of man to date took place in the most unlikely place on the globe. It was not in Scotland through John Knox or through G. Campbell Morgan or F.B. Meyer, not in England, it certainly wasn't in Switzerland through Calvin, it wasn't in America through the first and second great awakening. The first and greatest revival that took place where the whole place was converted took place in Iraq, not far from Baghdad, where many of you have been, in a place called Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is 153 miles northwest of Baghdad. A number of our Marines have been there. And when you think of Jonah, we don't typically think of him as an evangelist. Most people just think of him as the prophet who was swallowed by a great fish. But God used him unlike any evangelist in the history of the world. And so here's a man who has a phenomenal impact. And if you remember, I gave you three words to summarize each chapter. If you've been following here with us in this series, you have three words written out in the margin of chapter one. You have three words written out in the margin of chapter two. And then last time, if you were here, I gave you three words to put out in the margin of chapter three. And we'll do the same when we come to the fourth chapter. Again, I want you to think your way through the whole book because if you understand a book of the Bible, it becomes a tool, not just in your life, but to help other people and to disciple others. Next to verses 1 and 2, you should have the word, the recommission. The recommission, and that God recommissions Jonah to preach. Then next to verses 3 and 4, you should have the response. You wrote that word response because what we find here is the response of Jonah to preach. And then next to verses five through 10, you should have the word result because what we find in this section that we're going to examine today is the results of this man's preaching. Now we began last time by looking at the recommissioning of Jonah to preach because God is the God of the second chance. And so the chapter opens, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Sometimes this chapter is called the God of the second chance, but I hope you understand that God does not give second chances in relation to salvation. Jesus plainly said to the unbelieving Jews of his day, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, the Messiah, the Son of God, you will die in your sins. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, the writer of the Hebrews says to me, is that appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment." You die, and then you don't experience reincarnation. You don't experience a second chance at salvation where someone comes to you in Hades and preaches the gospel to you, as Clark Pinnock, a so-called Christian evangelist, said. No, it's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There's no second chance in terms of salvation, but God is the God of the second chance in terms of service. Now, if you've read and studied the book of Hebrews and you know it well, there are six warning passages in the book. And one of the underlying themes in Hebrews is that if you put God off long enough, you'll lose your second chance. God can shelve you if you ignore his grace, his prodding through his chastisement. But Jonah, he stops fleeing, he repents. And so we read in the opening verse, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now I want you to see his response as it's unfolded here in verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now what a difference between the first commission and the second commission. In chapter 1 and verse 1, but Jonah rose up to flee. But now in chapter 3 and verse 1, so Jonah arose and went. No argument, no hesitation, no him hawing. He had paid the price of God's chastising hand, and he was in full obedience. Now, wouldn't it have been easier for him to have done that the first time? Of course it would. You say, was God inconvenienced? God is never inconvenienced. God doesn't need anything. You know, people talk about God needs our help. God doesn't need our help. That's misrepresenting the living God. God is totally complete in himself. He needs nothing. When we are disobedient, God is not inconvenienced. We are inconvenienced. And so in verse 2, we study to rise, go to Nineveh. Notice how it's described in verse 2, the great city. And here in verse 3 now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city a 3 days walk and if you were here last week we saw how archaeology has shed quite a bit of light on the greatness of this city There was an inner wall, there was an outer wall. The inner wall ran two and a half miles along the Tigris River and then another eight miles around the perimeter of the city. And outside of that inner wall, there was an outer wall that was 75 miles in circumference. It was wide enough for three chariots to ride across its top side by side. It was 50 feet high and 40 feet wide. And between these two walls, you have Nineveh and Greater Nineveh. And some of you run out in your margin, and I know some of you are new here, and you don't have a Bible, and that's okay, I get it. You've never needed one before when you come to church. You need one here, and if you don't have one, and half of our visitors who come don't own a Bible. Come to meet the pastor and you'll get a a very nice new Bible. But you should have written out in the margin, Genesis 10, 11, and 12, that describes Nineveh Metroplex. In either case, in verse four, it says, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, as we noted last week, one day's walk in the ancient world was about 20 miles. You walked about 10 miles in the morning, in the midday, in the heat of the day, you didn't walk at all, and then you walked another 10 miles in the afternoon. So get the picture here, he's about a third of the way through the city when he starts preaching. Now, remember, this is a wicked, violent group of people as the archaeological record unfolded. And I gave you pictures of actual writings on their gates, some of their artwork, and not to mention some of the writings that have survived, not to mention the prophet Nahum, who comes 100 years later, and he describes how they returned back to their wickedness. So he comes into the city... And he begins to preach, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You know, his heartbeat had to pick up a little bit. I mean, it was a terrifying message for the people to hear. People say, well, it seems like God is angry with Nineveh. Yes, he is. God is always disturbed by sin. Now, God is all-powerful. He could have certainly wiped these 600,000 people off the map in an instant, but God is long-suffering. God told Abraham that he would wait until the fullness of iniquity had come into the promised land, and then they would go and take it over. The 400 years was not accidental. God is all-powerful. He could have just obliterated the 600,000 people off the map of Nineveh. But God is gracious. And it's an expression of grace when God brings a message of judgment. Because if you know your Bible throughout scripture, when judgment comes, it's a warning to flee to the mercy and grace of God Almighty. When I went into the ministry in 1978, 86% of Americans believed that hell was a real place. Now, amongst millennials, only 54% believe that hell is real. And the lower you go, Generation X, Generation Z, it gets smaller and smaller. And sadly, in evangelicalism, the doctrine of eternal retribution in, in hell has virtually disappeared. Why won't pastors preach it? Well, because it's not culturally relevant. Well, it's relevant to God, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As I told you last time, if we had a little more hell in the pulpit, we'd have a whole lot less hell in our nation today. And so having examined his recommissioning and his response, we want to give our attention this morning to the results of Jonah's preaching. A revival takes place, or maybe in more technical terms or in an awakening, but I'll use the popular use of the term revival. Typically, the word revival is used to describe when God's people are shaken up and get their hearts right, and awakening is used in reference to the lost being saved but it can be used both ways. I don't want to get too semantical, so don't come up to me after and try to delineate the difference, all right? So I want to give you four marks of this revival, of this awakening. Number one, the means to this revival. Let's think about the means to this revival. Look, if you will, at verse five. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now, there's a lot of confusion in our day about what it really means when the text says they believed in God. And as you read through it, it says because they repented, God relented. God changed his mind. So what did they really believe? Just in God's existence? No, that little word in is critical to the whole verse. James 2 says the demons believe and tremble. People all the time will say, well, I believe there's a God. Well, of course they do. Everyone does. I know you'll meet people on occasion who will argue that they are agnostic, that they are atheistic, but they're not. They're lying to themselves. There are no atheists in the world. There's a lot of foolish apologetics in our day that's trying to defend the existence of God. I follow God's example in Scripture. He devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And so when I meet someone who says they're atheistic, I'll say, well, you're really not. Let me tell you why. And if that's not good enough, okay. I'm not going to waste my breath. You don't cast your pearl before swine. There's a time to walk away. How do we know that every man believes there's a God. Well, Paul argues, if you remember Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. How so? Being understood through what has been made or created so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they knew that God existed, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So there's a sense in which all men know that there's a God. They know it, one, through the creation around them, but two, through the conscience within. And so when you come to Romans 2, for when Gentiles, and here the word Gentile is being used not to describe a a non-Jew, but basically a raw pagan. For when pagans, you could say, who do not have the law, meaning they don't have a Bible, they've never seen the Ten Commandments, When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves. How so? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. So not only has God written his word here in printed pages, he's written it here in the human heart so that people who've never seen a Bible instinctively know the moral law of God and that their conscience either defends them or accuses them. Who are they pleasing or displeasing? The God who created them. So the God who made them has revealed himself to them. And in that sense, they know God, but please understand that is very different from the terms of the new covenant where the scripture says we can know God. Listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 31. He writes, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of, Ju- with the house of Judah. Now, if you know Jeremiah the prophet, he's looking down the carters of time to what contextually he has just referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. In the New Testament, it's called the Great Tribulation Period. And while we are reading this morning the single biggest revival in the history of the world to date, the greatest revival is still in the future, and it will happen through the Jewish people in the land of israel where they are converted and then they become god's spokesman to people across the world and so through the two witnesses through an eternal angel through those people they convert through the 144,000 jewish evangelists the gospel goes out to every tribe tongue and nation it will happen during the tribulation period and when it happens the scripture teaches then the end will come then the second coming will happen So the Jews today are not recipients in a real life-changing way of the New Covenant except those completed Jews who know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. But most of the Jewish people are in unbelief. So the church is removed. It's called the rapture, the catching up of the church. And that seven-year time frame known as the Great Tribulation unfolds. And in a powerful way, people hear the gospel across the planet. Now, with that said the writer of the Hebrews in the eighth chapter quotes Jeremiah 31 as saying that it can be fulfilled amongst believers today. Now that does not mean God is done with Israel. In fact, right after you read this portion of scripture, Jeremiah the prophet will say, this covenant, this new covenant that I am making with Israel, is going to be kept in fact as long as the sun is in the skies the moon and the stars are up there that's how long i will be committed and faithful to israel and this is important because sadly those in the reformed camp of theology have obliterated israel they have said that the church has replaced israel the church has not replaced israel god has is not done with the jewish people and so we're living in a lot of uh, ignorance when it comes to basic Bible prophecy. Someone asked yesterday, do you think this could be World War III? I don't know, none of us know, it could be. But let's say for the sake of argument, World War III unfolds in the next few weeks. Would it be different from World War I and World War II? Absolutely. Why? Because Israel's in the land. They weren't in the land during the first and second world wars. They are in the land. They became a nation just as God prophesied in a single day. And he's been gathering them from the four corners of the world. So I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. He's describing a personal relationship with the Lord, an internal relationship with the Lord. And so he further says, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Look, that's only possible when you're born from above when you're born again. Here's how Jesus described the new covenant in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. This is the eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's talking about knowing God personally, not just knowing that God exists, but knowing God in a real life changing way. And that happens when you repent and believe. Jesus made this statement in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. At the ascension, he made this statement in Luke 24. He told them that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, takes the Tanakh, reveals from their Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. They're pierced to the heart. They say, brethren, what must we do? And in one word, he says, repent. Now, let me just say parenthetically, it's possible to preach the Bible and to preach the gospel of salvation without ever using the word repentance. You say, Pastor Carl, that sounds like double talk to me. Think your way through this very carefully. While every book of the Bible in some way teaches and preaches the work of Christ, there is one book in particular in the New Testament whom we are told its objective was to give us the plan of salvation. John will write in John twenty thirty. so then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But then he adds, these had been written, these seven miracles, five that are unique to John's gospel prior to the resurrection. I've written what I've written, the works and words of Jesus Christ, why? So that, here's the reason, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is why he writes this gospel, so people could be saved, and yet the word repent, does not appear once in the Gospel of John. In fact, I would submit to any pastor that if you cannot preach the plan of salvation without using the word repentance, then you're probably misrepresenting the Gospel. And so some in our reformed faith, they front load the Gospel, almost making repentance a work Like it's something that you do before salvation in order to believe, and it is not. Again, brethren, what shall we do? And in one word, Peter said, repent.
1: Repentance is not an act or work one does for salvation. In fact, it is the complete opposite. It's turning from sin and admitting there is nothing you can do to save yourself. If you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH7. You can also use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogie app, available for smartphones and tablets. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we'll continue our message in our series from the Book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.